they're, it's hard to talk bad about your mom or your dad when you love them, you know, mm-hmm. and then when you start mm-hmm. to sort out the pieces and you start to see, oh, wow, this really hurts. And my mom and dad aren't perfect. And there's this hole or these holes. I always say they're like Swiss cheese and there's holes and you become aware of them and you feel them. And then you have a choice. And it comes down to the choice. What am I going to do with these holes? Hello, friend. I'm so grateful that you're here. You're listening to Your Spin Out is Gorgeous, a podcast of communion, a place where we connect within the full spectrum of humanity. My name is Natalie Q, and I'm your host. I'm a mother, a lover, a friend, and your fellow human. What I want to offer you is liberation from the cultural foists, the narratives that are thrust upon us and guide much of our experience here on the planet. I'm with you on your journey of unlearning. What if everyone you knew was pursuing a life of whole self-integration, witnessing and offering thanks for all that they are, warts and all? That's not just self-care, that's true, unconditional self-love. And I want to be there with you as you set your life and all the things that aren't serving you alight. With you as you bravely consider life from another perspective. Let's explore all things humanity without the veneer, together. Life examined, not just the pretty parts. You in? Let's do this. Hello, hello, stranger. (laughs) Thank you so much for tuning in today. I apologize for the mystery, like month-long absence and just ran into some snags. I'm going to actually come back with um, some explanation and discussion of that next week. And we will be doing a little wrap up of what we are calling season one so that we can put this chapter to bed and come back with a new season and um, a new vision and direction, which is really, really exciting. But today I have for you Amelia Mora Mars here with me to talk about the mother wound. And I am still so passionate and excited about these topics. Amelia is a psychotherapist and a mother of 10. She helps women um, focus on their healing from their childhood and their relationship to their mother and, of course, themselves. And her she is um, her website is momconnections.com. Check it out. She's very, very um, along the same lines of the intergenerational trauma episode, looking at what difference to you today in your life does your upbringing and the upbringing of your parents, especially your maternal um, side of the family, what what bearing does that have on the person that you are today? And I absolutely loved our conversation. I'm so excited to share it with you. And without further ado, here she is. Okay, Amelia, I'm so glad that you're here with us today. Thank you so much for being here. I'm so glad to be here. Thank you for having me. You are welcome. So let's just jump right into the mother wound and lay some context to you, your story, how you got involved in this work, and that'll lead us into what the mother wound actually is as well. So the the floor is yours. Thank you. Well, I am one of four children. My parents are from Costa Rica. And my parents came here before having us. And my mom was very much like a little girl mentally in a lot of ways. She could cook. She could clean. She could do all those things. But um, there was the language barrier. And then she just presented like a little girl. And she also had mental illness. She was severely anxious. She would struggle with depression. And she was very moody. So she hit us a lot. And so we were afraid of her. And I'm not the oldest child. I'm the second, but I took the oldest role. And so what I would do is like motivate my siblings. Okay, let's clean the house. Because I knew a clean house was very important to her. And I knew quiet was very important to her. So I'd say, okay, you take the bathrooms. I'll do the kitchen. And I put the music on and I'd motivate our siblings. And so my life became a way of keeping mom calm and walking on eggshells and fearing her and wondering what her mood was like. And I remember very vividly a day where I decided that, you know, my mom has a very affectionate side, but she has a very scary side and it's better just to shut it down. Just 
don't ask for affection, don't long for affection, just completely cut her off because it's just a lot safer. And then my father, he didn't want to be around her either. So after work, he would um, come home and eat and then leave. And he would say he would go to the movies and um, he would spend time out. So my life was a lot of trying to figure out how to protect us. And um, that just became a way of living. And that's what happens with the mother wound is you self-protect and you find a way to live that now these roles and these identities are so intertwined and that becomes, you know, who I am and who I was. And so as a young mom, I remember my twin girls were playing um, with a friend. They had a little friend in kindergarten and the little girl um, was ill and they finally had diagnosed her with leukemia. And I remember intellectually thinking, oh my gosh, that is so sad. I felt so bad for the mom and for the daughter and for the family, but I couldn't feel anything. I just knew it was bad. And I remember thinking like, oh my gosh, there's a part of me that's dead. There's a part of me that's dormant, that's quiet, that's silent. And that terrified me. And I remember thinking, okay, now I'm a young mom and not feeling has worked for me in a lot of ways, but it's not going to work for me to be able to connect on an emotional level with my children. And I remember having to make a choice. And the choice was I could stay in this way of living and be numb and not feel, or I can fight for life and to, to live and to feel and to cry and to laugh. And I remember that being really scary for me because I was really efficient my mom would call me her little secretary, you know, as um, parents who were immigrants, I would speak English for them and I would sign all my mom's, um, fill out all her forms and do all the busy work for her. And that was my role is I was her secretary and I was efficient and I could get stuff done and I hid behind that. But now I had to like consciously shed this facade and take off the mask and learn to live and learn to feel. And it was terrifying, but it's the work of living. And that's the beauty of it. So it's, it has served me well. And um, as a little girl, I had wanted to be a therapist. And I remember in middle school, you know, you write the report, you have to write, you know, like the schoolwork and what has to happen. And one of the things was you have to have therapy yourself. And I thought, oh, hell no. <laughs> Hell no, I don't want to remember nothing, you know. And so I kind of scrapped it until I was older and then a young mom. And I thought, you know what? I've done the work and I'll continue doing the work. But you know what? Now I'm ready to go to school. And I was so glad I waited because I would have been a rescuer. I would have been <laughs> not a very good therapist. Um, so I'm so glad that I waited. And so when I went through school and we had to choose a specialization, I saw that attachment was one of the options. And I latched onto that. I wanted to learn about attachment because I knew I had a very poor attachment and I wanted to learn how to attach closer with my children, with my, my loved ones, my husband. And what style were you, were you avoiding? I would say I was anxious avoidant because I I had yeah. a lot of anxiety, which on, you know, on that continuum of that's the worst, I would say I was probably on the better end of anxious avoidant, you know, because I was very anxious, mm -hmm. but the anxious avoidant is, is the person that's trying to attach to the mother, but she's also my source of fear. So it's like, I want you, mm -hmm. I want to be close to you, but I'm afraid of you, you know? So I was that mm -hmm. uncertainty. So, um, I think because I had my siblings and because I, I love to read and academics that kept me grounded and connected to something versus being completely lost. Um, so then, yeah. We Are we, we're like the same. Per I'm the second oldest as well. And I would never want to take away from my older sisters. She copped a brunt being the oldest, but I identify a lot with what you're saying as well about these roles and about, um, my mother herself didn't have mental illness, but her mother had. 
And so to me, this is interesting what she absorbed that had been unconscious because she was such a young mother that played out in sort of a really similar way. And I know from the TikTok where I've talked about the mother wound that a lot of people have experienced what we have experienced together. It's almost in certain ways, I wouldn't say universal, but extremely ubiquitous, right? And so I'm interested what um, the older siblings role, why why it fell on to you as the second oldest. What happened there? She was very fragile. And um, mm-hmm. like, for example, if my mom gave us a chore, like go clean your room, go clean your closet, she would be like paralyzed. She wouldn't know what to do. And I'd be like, oh my mm-hmm. gosh, you're killing me. You just open up the closet, you pick up this, you do, you know. And so she just was like this little lost girl. She just didn't know where to start. She was very much a follower. Mm-hmm. She struggled academically. She had eating disorder issues since I can remember the apple diet, the all kinds of diets. Um, Mm. And so she just went in a lot of ways, not as much as my mom, but just kind of lost little girl too. And for me, it's an interesting thought because it's like this two women, two daughters, same mother, two different trauma responses. Sounds like she went into like a real freeze mode where you, not that you necessarily did, but it highlights how the the response for someone like you could have been to go in then to over-performing, over-communicating, over, um, what's the word for it? There's one where it's like over-functioning, complete over-functioning, not necessarily to say that you did, but to for any other people who are like, hmm, I had, the, I, the, I had a, a childhood like that and my siblings' responses to it look very different. And it's so interesting to me the way that overfunctioning then would probably mean somebody's type A. Maybe they're ultra successful, they're ultra skinny, and yet that's a trauma response. And then over here, this person is in shame and self-loathing because their trauma response is freeze mode, which then those re- <laughs> those are not rewarded in our society to numb out, to be lazy, to be sleeping in, to be, you know, completely avoiding the situation, to not be able to communicate. You know, it's it's really, really interesting. And to me, why the study of this is so important with nuance, because we've sort of universally decided as a culture what these things mean when we see the visible face of them. And we have not gone beneath the surface of what is actually causing these and perpetuating these and that our attitudes about them might be totally, totally off. But that's that's really interesting. Keep keep going though yeah, so, with your flight, freeze or faint. I was the fighter. Mm-hmm. <laughs> my older mm-hmm. sister would faint or or freeze rather, and then my younger sister mm-hmm. would flee. She was like like the one I'm out of here. You know, she would leave the house and go play and get in trouble, and that was her response. She wanted to travel the world and just kind of get away. She didn't want to be attached to anybody. Um, so. Yeah, exactly. It was just, it's very different. We had a brother years later and then we raised him because now we were older and he's completely different. He's like super confident and um, successful in his business. So it's, it is very fascinating what happened. Well, I have younger siblings too. And I've thought a lot about the way I don't really know, or my response was fawning, which is the codependency, which is the the one where you've you placate, you make it all okay, you you ultra sweet, ultra nice, and it's again something like, oh, what a nice person. No, that's a trauma response yeah. for feeling like I needed to find safety by being ultra unproblematic in every way, which is totally inauthentic, and it's still a way that I need to used to feel a a sense of control when I don't feel in control through boundaries, through healthy communication, through standing in my value, through all of these things. And it's something that I'm working on now. But as far as those younger siblings, I don't have any brothers. So I don't really know how it would have played out between the different sexes or genders, mother wound to a son, father wound to a daughter. You know, I, I don't really know within my own family, which is interesting. But I do think that 
there was a lag between my younger siblings too, which meant my parents matured and grew. And maybe some of what had been unconscious in their parenting when I was younger had now been brought to consciousness and healed. And I think they had a totally different experience than the older three, the younger two. So, but I don't have um, the, the, that it was a brother. They were still both sisters. So it's, that's really interesting the way it can play out. Is that how you'd describe it for your brother? Or do you think that it was um, misogyny internalized or otherwise that your brother was a boy and had, was, had some preference? I I do think that is part of it because that is very much of the Latino culture. Um, The other piece, I remember, I think I was about 15 and my mom was going to hit my brother and I confronted her and I told her, you will never hit my brother. And she was very angry at me. Um, But that, that became conscious, like for her, she, I remember she went to her Bible study and complained about me, but she was able to talk about it really for the first time. And then my father, they had sports in common. My father would only watch boxing really, but my brother played baseball. And so now they had the Dodgers, you know, in California. And um, so he had a lot more father, father time than, than we did. I tried so hard to reach my father I would do his tie every morning as like a little girl um, before he would go to work, just anything to be close to him. But you're right. I think now that they were older, my father took on a different role. And then we were telling my father, you know, you need to spend more time with him. Um, He's going to college. You need to look into colleges with him. And I remember him saying like, oh, yeah, that's right. Because he had no no one had ever done it for him. He never went to college. He finished GED. Mm -hmm. Here is a you know, as a 30 year old father, my mother barely finished the 10th grade. So, you know, everything was new to them. So we were kind of um, guiding them along and prompting them to do certain things. So it became, oh, yeah, that's right. I should be doing that. Hmm. Interesting. Are your parents still alive and married? They're not married. But they are. They are alive. (laughs) <laughs> and are your siblings close? Yeah. What has this work done? In proximity. Um, my brother had, he probably lived like three hours away and he just moved back the week that my younger sister had been diagnosed with stage four cancer. So it was so nice to have us all together at the time. So um, she's doing good now. Has this work been disruptive to your relationships with them or has it been connecting or what what has the result of speaking about these things publicly or working with them? I, I ask, I guess, because sometimes people don't want to face it. And, the, and so then it can be disconnecting. And then maybe other people do want to face it, in which case it's ultra bonding. So I can see that it could go any <laughs> either way. You're right. Um, like my mother doesn't want to hear anything about mental illness. My oldest daughter has bipolar. And I'm sure that's what my mom had too. Um And then my siblings, my brother's wife went through therapy. And um, so I feel like they're completely in a different place. My older sister, very much about um, her daughter's obedient, compliant, be nice, don't go to college, be a homemaker, um, homeschool them, very traditional. So she's still playing She's still playing that role. I think my younger sister, I was listening to um, Marissa Peer talk about the different roles that we play. And one of them was being sick. I think my younger sister, as a young girl, you know, she was just very sickly, very fragile. And I remember her saying that I always loved being sick because mom would pay attention to me. And, um, So she got healthy for a lot of years, but then she got sick again. And, you know, I just sometimes wondered if that was just a way of, because she really needed some love and attention for her, herself, her life. Cause she, yeah, was an avoider, worked hard, busy, 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 but I never did the work either. Mm. Yeah. That's interesting. I, I, I never, I hadn't thought of that because it just isn't something I've seen or, um, wasn't my personal response, but that makes a lot of sense. Sick for attention and 
then that is brought into your like whole psychosomatic way of being that like you're almost incentivized within your psychology to be sick because you're equating that with love. Wow. That's, that's pretty interesting. I'm going to leave thinking about that pretty deeply. So tell us about um, beginning through school and, and how this has evolved into helping other people healing yourself and then working in a, in a capacity where you're facilitating that work for other people. Well, I, Early on decided after you do, you know, all the work that you have to do that I, I wanted to specialize in working with moms. But then as I was working with teenage girls, I thought, oh, my goodness, I'm seeing the patterns already. And they're, they're mm-hmm. just very prominent. They are there. And if I can help them when they're younger, become aware of what's going on and help them um hopefully to to navigate this through so that they don't carry the baggage and the burdens that, that we did. And as I look at my, just the, the, the young women who, a lot of them are mostly in college right now, they either had a very passive enabling mother and a father with a mental illness or, or an addiction or was very much like um, a Peter Pan, you know, make all kinds of promises mm-hmm. and I'm going to do this and have this kind of job. And so... Now you have a woman who's angry (laughs) at the man, but she's enabling him. And then, so then the child is growing up with an enabling mother and very angry mother and a father who's just irresponsible, or um, there's a mental illness component to it. So helping them have the understanding, because I think a lot of times you internalize that it's, it's your fault in some way that you take on some kind of responsibility and and to take a step back and and to be able to look at the picture. And I think that's a really big part. Part of my work was was learning about my grandparents and their grandparents. And my grandmother um, wanted to be a nun. She wanted to be a nun, you know, and serve God. And she was 17 years old and her father told her, no, you're going to get married and you're going to marry this man who's twice your age. So she never wanted to be a, a, a wife. She never wanted to be a mother. She gave birth to 18 children, six passed away. 18? Six passed away, yeah, at various ages. You know, in Costa Rica, they would have a little stomach condition or heart condition and they would pass away. So she had 12. And um, she was... A, when my um, aunts and uncles talk about her, she, again, she was another woman that was furious. Was that mental illness? I don't know. Or was she was pissed off, you know, or a combination of everything. Mm-hmm. And so that's who raised my mother. And my mother uh, was pregnant with me when her mother, Amelia, passed away. So my mom was 27 when she lost her mother. And I remember saying to my mom, um, did you have a relationship with your sisters? Did they help you at all? And she says, no, they had their own families. So my mom winged it, you know. So, you know, just just seeing these young women, helping them to see not just the picture here, but the bigger picture and the, and how it's in context and that is it's not their fault. It's patterns. But you can choose as a young lady, as a young woman to be to um, inf- establish and enforce boundaries and and protect yourself in your life so that you can um, have a completely different life, a beautiful, fun, energetic life that you actually own. You know, I, I give them the analogy of driving a car. It's like, are you driving the car? Are you a passenger in the passenger seat? Are you in the back seat of your life? Are you in the trunk? You know, you want to be in your yeah. car. And so you can see how easily one would slip into climbing out of the driver's seat of their own life into any of those spots within the car due to different upbringing. You bring up such, I I don't know how much your work converges with calling these wounds the societal wound, but your story illustrates to me, religion's been a big part of it. You don't get to a point like we have in society where there are more men named David who are CEOs of company than the entirety of women. You don't get to an imbalance of power in leadership. You don't get to an imbalance of power 
um, through, in the narratives of control. I saw a, a meme yesterday that this was a legitimate thing. It on the girls' bathroom, women's bathroom, it had, "Oh yeah, you're about to lose some weight." That's literally what the ladies' room door said, and right next to it, the male door said something about conquer king like you're the man you know some kind of stupid thing where these are the that's not even a joke that's not even pose law that's not even an snl skit that is real life and i've been marveling at the way that women who for thousands and thousands and thousands of years have been the caretakers and yet raised even men the men they raised would then go on to be a more domineering force in their life, making them climb into these spots within the car. And how do women who have the majority of child rearing not in one generation turn it around to where these men who are sons, fathers, brothers, not controlling their life choices, making them feel like it is their duty and responsibility to get out of the driver's seat of their own life and hop into the trunk so that the men around them can drive that car or other women too. But you guys know, <laughs> you, you know that <laughs> this is not just some kind of feminist rant about the patriarchy. This is backed by data. We have a wage gap. We have all of these things. And these are the kinds of mothers that have been raising us, mothers who are extremely frustrated with their place within society, with their lack of life choices, myself included. I had children quite young, younger than I would have chosen if I hadn't been doing what not only my parents, but my culture of origin told me to do. And I started waking up to that at about 27. And I went, oh my God, I didn't need to get married at 21. I could have gone to an Ivy League school. Why didn't anybody tell me I was smart? Why didn't anybody? But you, if I had had brothers, I know that that's what it, what would have happened, which is almost like a gift that I don't see the way I'm, you know, I would have been so different than a, a son that my parents would have raised. But um, this this is what our mothers for uh, futures have looked like that have, you know, maybe they didn't really want to raise kids, but we're told that that was their duty, their obligation, and the entire reason why they were born. I, I that may sound like a hysterical statement, but that was said to me over and over and over implicitly and explicitly until I was 30. So I know myself that I have had to reckon with the certain ways in which I was raised that certain life, a certain life was taken away from me. And this is in the, in an age when this has been watered and watered and watered and watered down. I'm not over here with my tiny violin. I'm saying this is a universal experience that as a woman I am connected to that in generations, my mom's generation, your mom's generation, our grandmother's generation was infinitely worse. And these things matter today. This isn't whining. This isn't, um, Vic blaming. This isn't being a victim. This is speaking the truth about the consequences of the way that our set, our culture and society has been set up. And it is individually experienced and it is collectively experienced, right? And I'm sure that's what you see in your work with each woman that you work with. Absolutely. Like you mentioned, religions and cultures and um, very much a part of it. I mean, my father could boil water to make instant coffee. I never saw him fry an egg or anything. And my mom would say to us girls, serve your father. And I cringed. I hated that, you know, and I ended up marrying. My mom did too. I'm undoing so much of that right now. I, 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 I'm not going to publicly, I'm going to save some of the more hysterical stuff as in not funny, but actually hysterical that she absorbed from her mother clearly from that time period of ultra subservient. There's a really great book called getting to, I do that said you should never serve a man past the age of five. So this is in your mothering, you know, you're doing it to your sons too. I know when I read that I was, and I was serving my son more than my daughter because these attitudes are embedded embedded in us and they're playing out on automatic until you have something that shows you that's actually not normal that's actually not these default modes are default but that's not because there's any merit to them that's because they're unconscious 
And that is men are used to being served and because so many men expected and women have been told that. And I was told that too. And I am undoing that with my daughter now because you you can't stop doing it. You're serving men at your work. You're serving men in every aspect of your life. And the men are have an unconscious attitude of demanding that. And it's a very, very difficult thing to step out again as individual in individuals and society. But tell me, tell me more about how that, how, what you see with the women who come to you, what, what they're unique. Um, what are the responses that they have and the thoughts that they have from the, these situations of these fathers and these kinds of mothers? I feel like there's a lot of, at first there's not an awareness um, but they start to get really honest. Like my mom is so passive, um, but she's, she's such a fake, you know, she goes out at church and she's got this big smile on her face and she's very loving. Um, but she's fake and she's weak. And then my father, you know, is mentally ill, you know, and, and, and paranoid about what's happening. So they're, they're starting to, you know, the, the idea of therapy is, is integration, right? The, the, the healthiest people can integrate the masculine, the feminine, the good, the bad, the ugly, um, and start to think for themselves that my life wasn't perfect. It may be odd. I, maybe I don't even like my mother right now. Um, and so they're getting honest with themselves and starting to see things almost like they're holding it in their hands and spinning it around and, and seeing things in, in a different way, in a new way. And it's a mm. beautiful, I, I, I consider it a privilege to, to witness this growth with these women. It's hard work, you know, it, it's hard work for them oh, it is. because they have to be honest and they have to be to take yeah. their parents off of the pedestal and say, Oh, that I've been really hurt. I'm very angry about certain things and mm-hmm. want to do things very differently. Mm-hmm. So what I'm hearing you say is that there's the childhood and there's sort of trunking along and maybe like the car has a flat tire and the windshield smashed and you're sort of unconscious of that. You're not even conscious because I think, not to project my personal, but this is how I feel. Like you, our culture absorbs also don't, you don't speak these ugly truths. You don't acknowledge these ugly truths. Oh, it was fine. I'm fine. A toxic positivity culture, right? Keeps us asleep and in the dream that, uh, you know, it's, it is what it is. And if you can even sort of acknowledge that there might be an issue, but through that unconsciousness, there's sort of then I would assume a moment of awakening or maybe reckoning. And what does that look like for for most people? How do they begin to realize that all is not as well as they were maybe telling themselves or whatever form the unconsciousness came for them? Is it a big event? Is it is it a rock bottom? Is it that they're medicating, coping, and then they they'd have to go, I don't want to live like this anymore, or what what does it usually look like that, that period? I think it comes down to the hurt where maybe they were hiding behind the busyness or the anger or the doing or the good grades or the friends or the partying or whatever. And then there's this hurt. And I think when they fall the cord down the hurt, it's that they believed a lie maybe, or they believe what they wanted to believe and things really kind of suck right now and they're trying to sort it out. So I think it's a process of um, a discovery and then just getting honest. You know, at first it's kind of, at first it's kind of hard, you know, when they're talking about their, their, it's hard to talk bad about your mom or your dad when you love them, you know, and then you start Mm -hmm. to sort out the pieces and you start to see, Oh, wow. This really hurts. And my mom and dad aren't perfect and there's this hole or these holes. I always say they're like Swiss cheese and there's holes and you become aware of them and you feel them and then you have a choice and it comes down to 
the mm-hmm. choice. What am I going to do with these holes? Am I going to continue on in the patterns? Am I going to um, continue to believe lies that I was brought up or taught? Or, um, or am I going to start thinking for myself? And then they start to move towards the driver's seat you know, of their life. And um, some of them are still really young and they're just kind of in the process. So luckies, <laughs> very lucky. I know I'm, I can mourn the years of my own unconsciousness, but I I know on different comments that I get that people only wake up to this in, at 50 or 60 or beyond. But to can you imagine what that would have meant to not only wake up to it at just, just entering into adulthood, but already begin to heal it before you make all of these major life decisions <laughs> that head you down these roads that you're just going to have to abandon later? What a leg up. That's hopefully the gift that we'll keep on giving for their generations. But that's, that's definitely the gift I want to give my kids. How, how do their relationships, I know it would be individual and unique, but, but I would assume that some of the purpose of doing this work obviously is for your own life and healing. But I know that there's probably an anger phase that they pass through with their parents. But ultimately, doing some like I, I did some reparenting work, which I'm sure is part of your work in healing this wound where you literally reparent yourself. You, I did a, a, a course where I went back into the womb. Um, then you, you're totally rewriting the script in these meditations in a meditative, you know, brainwave state. And you're looking at your parents, you're, you're connecting with them. You're, you're then born, you're then this was a series of meditations. It was like, okay, let's go redo the the series from two to three years old. And they call, I think she called it your most magnetic parents. You're the most idealized version of them. So it's really them, but you're rewriting your, and you're giving in the meditation, you're watching them give you the love that you needed. And I mean, some of these wounds you're describing big families, mine too. I think some of it, it was just a wound of, of coming from a big family that you, like your sister with the sick attention, I never went there. But in this idealized version, it's just that they had more time for me sometimes. I mean, these wounds can sometimes be subtle. It doesn't, ha- my dad didn't have mental illness. He wasn't avoided, but I have these wounds, you know? And and again, to me, it's a lot more of that societal, cultural um, wound that my parents didn't heal the tradition that they came from and the dysfunction that they came from. And then they might have thought they were hiding it, but I actually absorbed it. I absorbed their wounds. So it wasn't a big overt thing for me just to remind people that it can come in different forms. And if you're thinking, why am I hurting so bad? Actually, my parents were really good. Yeah, mine were too. But I know I can see the difference when I'm in that meditation of my most idealized version. But what that did for me is that idealized version is not where people live. There's no possible way. And I know as a mother, as I'm sure you would too, Amelia, there's no way I I myself live up to that ideal as I was meditating. And there was some kind of way in which that offered a forgiveness for the shortcomings. And I'm sure that there's different work where maybe different clients are going to stand and different people are going to stay angry forever. And, and that there are just some ways that their parents are really that bad and probably deserve that. And aren't their parents aren't growing, their parents aren't healing and narcissism, abuse, alcoholism, addiction, all these kinds of other forms of dysfunction. But if your parents are willing to maybe have conversations with you, I'm sure that part of the work is to repair a relationship with them and and speak to that a little bit of if it's possible when it's possible if it's the goal if it's not the goal <laughs> um, with most people yeah so I have this this client right now she's 19 years old I'm so proud of her she's like right now trying to get the courage to have a conversation with her father so he definitely has a mental illness of some sort and I've never met him. But he's been like in and out of the life. So the mom has these two girls and he abandoned them for a while. And now he's back in the picture and he's pushing, wanting to be a family. And she's like, I don't 
why do you like that in my life? And the thing is, he's never asked. He's never sat them down. He's trying subtly to stay at the apartment and he's going to stay there for a while. And now he's, they moved to another apartment and he's trying to, um, you know, move into the bedroom with the mom and the kids out. And they're just like, so distraught about this because it, it was never a conversation. It's not what they want. They are not comfortable with him. And so she's been working really hard and we've been working together and her getting the courage. She wanted to do it this weekend to have a conversation with her dad and say, these are the reasons why I'm so uncomfortable with you and how you keep pushing. And that's not what I want in my life. So yeah, she's just very nervous, but she feels like I have to do this. I have to be the voice. I have to do this for myself. I don't know how he's going to react, but I have to do it. So, mm-hmm. you know, I'm just really it's, it's so difficult. I'm watching the show Selling Sunset right now. I'd never watch TV, but I don't know. All of a sudden I'm like, oh, all right, maybe I'll watch TV after a 10-year break. But um Selling Sunset is this show on Netflix that's these high-powered career women in real estate. And they're it's like the book Men, I haven't read it yet. I'm going to Men Love Bitches. I mean, they're bitches in the essence of like alpha female. And there's a lot of drama and there's a lot of um, maybe unnecessary drama. But I'm actually healing mm-hmm. through watching it because I come from such enmeshment and making people responsible for your feelings. And when I watch the way this drama unfolds and people are just saying it and saying how they feel and they're showing their feelings and they're being angry. And I just, my jaw is on the floor because if someone was talking like that to me, I would crumble into a little ball and probably obliterate, you know, I'd be emotional. And, and I live to heal myself to the point that I could have really direct confrontational conversations. But why is it so hard with our parents? And I think that's maybe there's like a deeper healing for me as I'm thinking through how how difficult these, it's not just our parents, it's also our romantic partners, because those are both mirrors of each other. And they're going to bring up the same fears. Is it a fear of abandonment? Is it a fear of, you know, to be on, you know, if you've had come from um, things that give you trauma responses, where you're equating difficult conversations with removal of love, of course, there's going to be some kind of like fear of death, fear of the worst case scenario, fear of abandonment. And those fears aren't true but they're going to play out in your subconscious in every possible scenario where you need to have difficult conversations. But why is it in your mind that it's so challenging to really, if there's been dysfunction or a difficult relationship, or if there's been hurts that you want to make amends with, why are those conversations so difficult with parents or caretakers? I mean, I think there's different variables. I think um, in this particular scenario, it's again, like the Latin culture piece and the religious piece mm-hmm. of honoring your parent and um, feeling like I can't speak my truth, but at the same time thinking, okay, the truth is my friend. And, and that's what we're told to do is to speak the truth, even though this is so hard. She is afraid of him. She's afraid that um, he won't understand that he'll, um, misunderstand misunderstand her that he'll play the victim card and oh I'm such a poor dad and then oh no Mm -hmm. um part I think it's just hard to talk about hurt and pain and if the parents been an authority you know just a real strong um drill sergeant authority figure to bring up I think what happens a lot of times is that you're always in a one down, one up relationship. And so you're always looking up to that parent. And it's not until you do the work and become integrated that you see yourself, okay, we're both adults. And she's realizing I'm 19 now. I'm still a young adult, but I'm an adult and I have opinions. And I want to say them. I'm terrified. But I have to do this for myself. It's like fighting for yourself and coming home to yourself. Mm-hmm. And I know her mom's very nervous, anxious about it because of, 
the enabling nice piece. He never would have been back in the house if she would have stood her ground and said, oh, hell no. Uh-uh. <laughs> You're not, but she allowed it, you know. So now she's, you know, if no one's going to speak up, I must be the one to speak up. And then for me, I mean, I did the work for myself and I thought, you know, my mom might never ask for forgiveness because she used to say to me, why can't you forgive me? She'd get so angry. And in my head, I think mm. I never asked. And um, mm-hmm. I was 40 years old. I was about to turn 40 and there was a knock on the door. And it was my mom and she looked really anxious. And I had one of my children with me and she asked me to ask her to leave the room. And she said, um, I went to a retreat and the nun told me that I need to ask you for forgiveness. So it never occurred to her that you should ask, I suppose. So I said, okay. And then she said, and then she got really teary eyed and she said, why was I so mean to you? Mm. You know, and I said, because you did what was done to you. And she said, That's right. That's right. And I felt like she was asking me for forgiveness, but at the same time, I was asking her to forgive herself. So we were giving each other permission. There was a cycle going on of forgiveness. And that was it. It was never talked about again. I felt like it was very authentic. It was very real. And it happened. Did it, was it the healing that may, I'm assuming that that is not necessarily a moment that you sit there and dream of, but in a certain way, subtly wishing I had a better relationship with my mom. I wish we could talk about this. I wish, I wish I could bring this up without her getting defensive. So I actually get my needs met about this issue. I'm sure there were conscious or unconscious thoughts about that. Was it that for you? It When you say I've never, we never talked about it again. Was it because it was put to bed for you and healed. Yeah, it really was. I felt like it was finished. It was just, um, again, I had done the work that I thought it never occurred to me that she might ask me for forgiveness. I felt like I was good. I was, I'd let it go at that point, but it was just such a gift, um, to receive Mm -hmm. it. And it was even a greater gift to say, I understand. I understand see moms as bridges you know we were a bridge from our moms and grandmothers to our children and I wanted mm-hmm. that bridge clear you know mm-hmm. and one of the things I had done when I started to do my work I started to talk to my kids about where I'd come from and what I was doing because I wanted them to understand um this whole process of of healing of forgiveness of the mother wound of breaking cycles. Um, I wanted them to, to, to journey with it with me as much as they could to understand that this, this is where I came from and this is where my anger came from. I need to deal with my part um, so as to not pass it on um, to you kids. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. That's really beautiful. That's quite amazing and really inspiring too. I'm sure there are, a lot of people who are craving that and to see through you that it's possible and, and through the work that you do, that it's possible for others too. That's really amazing. Well, I was, you are a mother of 10. I, we got to have you on again about like the mother wound in your parenting where, because that's um, I know that for a lot of us, we are a bridge to this generation of unhealedness then we're this linchpin that we want to be the last chain in that cycle. And um, for me, I, I, I'm turning 40 this year. So I came to this work only a couple of years ago to realize that the majority of my children's subconscious was formed before I had healed, you know, all of these things. It's like, okay, how do I undo what I've already done? And how do I begin to, um, parents differently and foster the relationship. I think I've happened into a lot of that through great kids who are really understanding and just having an open conversation and vulnerability, being able to say, I'm sorry. I know that that was, 
I got, I, I came from a culture of, I'm sorry, but, and then it was like right back on the victim. So it's sort of that, like looking at it, realizing that didn't feel very good saying, I won't do that and I'll do better. I know a lot of things we say we'll do better. We do end up doing, but, um, we, we definitely need to do an episode of parenting, you know, to avoid, or I don't know how you'd call it (laughs) parenting to avoid the, the mother wound in your children, but Thank you seriously so much for being here. Where can people find you and your work? www.momconnections.com. For those who want to be part of my um, Facebook community, my group, um, where I post comments, do videos, do lives, do free workshops, that would be um, Mom Connections Remothering Tribe with a hyphen. So Mom Connections, R-E hyphen Mothering Tribe and um look forward to anybody who wants to grow with me and with us. And thank you so much for having me. I, I, I just um, appreciate this conversation because moms are desperate for help. I think especially right now because the load is even heavier. Our load mm-hmm. is heavy and it's not <laughs> a load. It's the emotional load, psychological load. And so I think women need more support now than ever. So thank you for having this conversation. It was my honor and pleasure to discuss the mother wound with Amelia. Thank you so much for being here and tuning in as well. I will see you next week where we will shoot the old shit. We're going to chew the fat on what it's been like to um, launch this podcast through the pandemic. What kinds of challenges um, became hurdles to, you know, not be able to be overcome. It's, it's very late at night. It's like 1.30 in the morning. Forgive my little rambling, nonsensical, can't string a sentence together. Um, but today was the day I just said I've got to get this edited and live. Um, but I am so excited to sort of speak with some transparency about the process. And it, it is, it's became, it's became, <laughs> struggle street. It's become an issue of not only my own self and my workload, but just um, different things like someone might be a great guest and they might be a really, really, really rare guest. Some of these topics that I want to speak about are very cutting edge and there aren't that many experts and their house is potentially on fire, you know, in addition to the pandemic. So it's things like this that have become a really, really big um, challenge, but that's okay. I'm, I'm inspired um, by getting creative and I just want to have a little conversation about it next week and tie up any loose ends. So I apologize for especially on the TikTok channel, that there are a few unanswered questions that we're not going to be able to get to just right now for a number of reasons. I wish I could, you know what, maybe I will just do an an episode where I'm answering them myself. Um, I'm not an expert. I'm not a psychotherapist like Amelia, but I am really, really invested in learning as much as I can and um, avoiding my own imposter syndrome, which is a trauma response, I now realize. So let's just chew the fat on this next week. And I thank you again for being here. Thank you to Antelope the Wild for our theme music. Thank you again to Amelia. You be well, and we'll see you next week. 